Welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Created for those committed to mastery and success. Coming to you from Manly, Australia, we break down the science and philosophy of optimal performance so you can unleash your potential. Okay, so welcome to the show, um, Yukai. Thanks for, for joining me. Um, how's it going over there? It's going great. It's uh, pretty sunny and hot in uh, Northern California. And uh, I guess we'll find out how it's in South Korea three days from now, which I'll be in. <laughs> oh, really? You're going over to South Korea? Yeah. And what's the purpose of that trip? Uh, there's a uh, large uh, yearly conference sponsored by the government there, and uh, I'm doing a keynote there. Oh, awesome. Okay, yeah, I guess you are doing a fair amount of traveling with your work. And doing, um, you seem to be doing quite a few speeches and, and talks and lectures. Is that a big part of your, of your, uh, of your life? Yeah. Uh, so before I was a, a tech entrepreneur, now I'm uh, full-time speaking, consulting, and writing. Awesome. All right. Well, let's dive into that. So if you could just explain to us a little bit more about what you do. Okay. So I am a, again, speaker, writer, consultant on this topic called gamification and behavioral design. So gamification is the craft of deriving all those fun, exciting elements that are found in games and applying that into things that are important but often boring. So things like education, training, uh, product design, healthcare, exercising, things like that. So I've spent, um, I've spent about 12 years now researching this field, been passionate developing companies and, and uh, concepts in this field. Um, and I was pretty lucky because about 2009-ish, uh, it actually became an industry. So uh, a lot of Fortune 500 looked into it. People who wanted to uh, do personal self-actualization uh, started to care about gamification. And I just happened to be one of the few people who's been doing it for, for so long. Yeah, man. You've, you've been in it for probably 10 years longer than I even knew the word existed. <laughs> so. Yeah. So it's like I've only I've only known the tip of the iceberg, and the iceberg itself goes back years, it seems. Um, cool. So tell me about your 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 upbringing. So presumably, when you're a kid um, like me, were you exposed to gamification principles through computer games? Yes. Uh, well, and, and my upbringing is pretty unique. I think I grew up in quite a few different countries. Um, in, I was born in Taiwan, but I lived in uh, South Africa for six years. And then uh, back to Taiwan for until about 13. And then I might move to the U.S. Uh, lived in Kansas, out of all places, for four years. And then uh, California, then Vancouver, Canada, and then now I'm Bay Area. So I did, I did grow up uh, loving games, spending a lot of time on it. And, and uh, it did lay out the groundwork of, of my work today. Awesome, man. So what sort of games did you spend most of your childhood playing? Uh, well, when I was very little in South Africa, we only had those uh, NES games, you know, from, um, from Nintendo. So Super Mario 3, Tank Wars, uh, some yeah. Pac-Man, then went to Super Nintendo. Then in Taiwan, played a lot of uh, Chinese RPG games, and then... Uh, StarCraft is what I spent a lot of time on by Blizzard. Yep. So I, I played a lot of StarCraft, Diablo, uh, which actually gave me my life epiphany to to start my gamification career. 
Um, and um, then eventually played a little bit more mobile games. Um, I played uh, some some shooting mobile games, and I spent some time on Candy Crush, uh, some other games like We Heroes or Battle Cam. It kind of goes across the board. Wow. Yeah, f- for me, it was a heavily a nin- Nintendo-influenced upbringing, I guess. And uh, yeah, Super Mario Brothers and, and all those sort of platform games, and then the races and all that sort of thing. Like those guys at Nintendo, are they are they geniuses? Are they are they pioneers, or are they just big kids, or are they both? I think they're 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 all of it. Um, they're definitely innovators, and uh, I mean, at the time, gaming is such a niche market. You know, who would who would have imagined it really taking the world by storm? And and this actually is an issue in in my industry these days, which is when we pitch gamification to you not know I me. Mean? For for me, most of my clients come find me, so I don't have to really sell very hard. I, I don't really do uh, much outreach myself, uh, but at least maybe the high level executives or some some of my readers' issues is that when they hear the word game, they they feel like oh well, my company is very serious. We don't play games, and and it's because in the early days the the demographic that the gaming companies target are little boys. So that's why, you know, everything's designed about fighting and all that stuff. And so uh, it's only until uh, when Zynga came out, right, that people realized, oh, look, you know, my, 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 my aunt is playing, you know, Farmville, and my aunt, my boss, whoever. And, and then there's the Nike Field Band, there's the uh, Foursquare. That's when people started recognizing, hey, wait a second, you know, this stuff is not just for kids, apparently. Um, and we know from from my gamification design theory that it really depends on who you're designing for. But the early early market uh, makes it a problem for for the executives today to accept it as a viable business strategy. Changing fast though, hey. I mean, when I when I just look at the people commuting on on ferries or on buses or whatever, there's so many guys in suits playing some sort of some sort of game. And and when I watched your um, one of the talks that you gave, I think it was a TED Talks, I was, I was shocked at the statistic that you unveiled um, around the average age of a gamer. Can you just repeat that? Yeah, so the average age of a gamer nowadays, actually a few years ago, is about 35 years old. So now I can only imagine getting even higher. Um, and, and about, I think, 40, 48%, 49% are female, so, so almost half of the, the population of gamers are female, especially look at games like Candy Crush um, and uh, Plants for Zombies and Angry Birds and the like, and so, and which actually means there's more adult women playing games than males under 18. So, so if you look at that stat, it's a very you know, generic demographic, right? You know, Average age 35-ish, half are female. It really just says that everyone has a capacity of enjoying a game. Now, some people don't play games because they feel like it's a waste of time. It's not productive. They feel guilty. Um, but as long as you give them a good reason to, they have the capacity to enjoy games. And so my job is to really help companies figure out, all right, how do you give them a game worth playing? Games where the more hours you spend on it, the healthier you are or the closer you are with family members or the better um, the more productive you are at work, and you actually get get promoted, you make more money when you play these games. And so, so that's that's what I try to do to to give them good reasons to enjoy games that they would enjoy anyway. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've I've spent a lot of my time thinking about this kind of transformation that we're supposed to go from childhood to adulthood, and 
in a way, I mean, if, if an alien were to, to land on our planet and just take a look at how serious the majority of adults, grown-ups are and, and kind of the societal constructs that we've created for that to be necessary, he'd kind, of be, he'd kind of think it was crazy because kids have so much fun, there's so much curiosity, and we kind of just shut those things down in normal society. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, that definitely. What's funny is that it's really the workplace that forces you to to be formal officially. If you look at the billionaires, the people, or you know, we're, I'm in Silicon Valley, so you see a lot of entrepreneurs who who've made millions of dollars when they're young. They they could be like 40, 50, 60 years old, and they all behave like children. You know, <laughs> it's it's really you have to be quote unquote paying your dues, working the organized, wearing your suit and tie for a while to 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 train yourself. Oh, I need to be something that society has uh, formulated, but it's not, re- not really natural to how we want to behave. You know, those passionate entrepreneurs, you know, again, they, they have enough money. They don't have to work anywhere, but they're always going back and say, hey, let's do this. This is awesome. And they go through all this, this uh, the troubling aspect, right? Starting a company is hard. Being an entrepreneur is very difficult, but, you know, people want to retire. These are friends I had. They want to retire. They say, I'm done for sure. I've, I've done enough suffering starting companies. And then a, like four, four months later, they can't help themselves. They go back to start a new company again. It, it, this exactly like is like a good game, right? Mm-hmm. Good games are meant to be difficult. It's meant to be uh, frustrating at times. But when you don't play it, you, you want to go back to play it again. Absolutely right. It's like a big puzzle, like this entrepreneurial journey. It, it, I see it like a big game. And yeah. it is and, it is challenging. And as a result, right, this is a whole different attitude. Some people do see their, their nine to five jobs as a game. So they're trying to figure out how to play it better. Mm. And they actually want to go there more. But most people, they don't see it as a game, right? That's why they love vacations. They're always thinking about their weekends, their vacations. And when they, can, when they leave their work, they're the happiest. Whereas when you actually see your work, see your life as a game, your, your main focus is not to avoid it, but to tackle it head on and enjoy it. Yeah, man, that's a that's a huge takeaway right there. See your see your working life, see your working day as a game. Like what 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 sort of strategies could you offer somebody who's working in a what you would call kind kind of a mundane job? Say it's say it's an administrative job, um, and they say they they basically stay at one place throughout the majority of the day. What kind of strategies could you offer that person? Yeah, so it's possible to to pinpoint strategies without kind of going through the actalysis framework created about about human motivation. Uh, but there's generally two types of uh, methodologies to gamify something. One, you are you are this you're not the individual, but you're the system, right? You create the environment for people to to enjoy this. So even even it's for yourself, right? You get to you get to. Uh, Design the rules. You get to design the environment. You get to design what's the win state. What are the feedback mechanics um, to track progress and and all these things like that. So that is where a lot of employers they're using the system to make their work environment more lively and interesting, engaging. Or you're creating your your home environment where you're more productive. Now there's the other standpoint where it's kind of like you said. You don't get to create much of your environment, your game, right? You, you're just there doing the job that other people have given you. And so I help a lot of the first one, the system creators. The second one is more of a lifestyle gamification choice. It's really about an attitude. How do you treat your life as a game? Which is, and how do you incorporate these core drives into your day-to-day workflow? Because you can, you can see everything as something mundane 
or you can see it as a game and you can try to master. So for instance, in a, in a sales job, right, and I do a lot of consulting for sales organizations because it's, it's, it's for some people it's dreadful, right? Because a, a, especially selling on the phone, it's like in the, the opposite of a game, right? You know, it, everything in a game is about, oh, you're awesome. You just hit, you just hit this goal. You're amazing. Whereas on, in a, um, in the sales job, you're always getting hung up. People are yelling at you. They're rude to you and all, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so most people feel demoralized. But if you talk to, so if you talk to the, the mediocre salespeople, they'll tell you that it's a numbers game. They'll tell you, oh yeah, you know, I was very unlucky. I called, you know, I talked to this guy. He was already angry and he hates our products. So blah. So whatever. I'm just gonna go grind more phone calls. It's a numbers game. But if you talk to the best salespeople, they will tell you things like, oh, you first say this and then you get quiet. And once they say that, that's your cue. You hop, you jump in, you trigger this this idea, and then you bring it, you take it home. For them, it's a game, right? They're strategizing. This is how you do it: A, B, C, D. You wait for this, and if they go path A, do that. If they go, they're passionate about telling you how they sell. So again, it's your attitude. One is, oh, I'm grinding. You know, it just sucks. I'm yeah. just doing my job. The other is, hey, this is how we master. This is how we do a better job. And oh, so man, part man. of that is your attitude, and your attitude really changes everything you do. Absolutely, dude. And, th- and this is where I can see such strong parallels with the, the work that I do with, with the flow state. Um, I've done a lot of consulting with entrepreneurs and people that are setting up their businesses. How can we get people into this state of flow? How can we get them more productive? And basically, the fundamental foundation is about that attitude. Like, do you, can you see the opportunity for play here? Um, and yeah, it's really interesting what you're talking about because when I was a salesman back in the day, it was like the funnest game was that psychological kind of, kind of puzzle that you're playing with this person and you've got no idea what they're going to do and you have to just, on the, on the spur of the moment, you have to like basically go into a flow state because you have to react instinctively um, to come up with something. And I, yeah, I used to find it pretty fun. Yeah, and that's actually uh, Core Drive 3, Empowerment of Creativity and Feedback, the Octalysis framework. And so that is on the right top of the octagon shape, so it means it's white hat, and it's a right brain intrinsic core drive. So that's the drive where people are really engaged. They feel good. It's long lasting. It's sustaining. Uh, but the interesting thing about work is that if you look at games, most games are also very monotonous. They're they're repetitive. If you think about Candy Crush, right? It's just matching three gems, matching three gems, matching three gems. If you look at Angry Birds, it's just throwing out the bird, throwing out the bird, throwing out the bird. Right? It's pretty much the same thing over over and over. But People can do this for four, five, six, seven hours a day, every single day, voluntarily, without thinking it's boring, because the the game has designed little triggers and cues to make to add those what we call the eight core drives into the experience. Yeah, it is amazing. When you were talking about those games and, and being monotonous, I was thinking back to when I used to play Tetris on the Game Boy. <laughs> Such a simple game, right? Such a simple game. But yet, sometimes when I feel um, the dots in my life all coming together. I, I kind of have this flashback to when I was a kid and when you dropped that long stick one down and you, and you wiped out four or five lines at the same time. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and I have a flashback to that and it's, and it's hardwired into my brain as like a, a, that satisfaction noise and that satisfaction feeling. And that, and that derives from uh, the second core drive, which is development accomplishment. It's also white hat, but extrinsic and motivation. Mm, okay, so t- talk to me more about white hat and black hat. I, I, I checked it out a little bit on the framework, but okay. 
So, so basically what I've done over the years is I've been trying to study what exactly makes a game successful in order to understand what makes a gamification design successful. So the, the biggest misconception these days is that, hey, look, gamification is basically putting what we call the PBLs, the points badge, the leaderboards, into a product or a, you know, a experience, and it automatically becomes fun. And it just didn't make any sense to me because if you look at all these games in the market, Every single game have these uh, game elements in them, uh, whether it's, it could be points, battles, leaderboards, could be you know quests, narratives, whatnot. But most games are still boring. So you know most are not financially successful, and only a very few amount of games um, achieve success. And so I want to understand why that is. So I spent time studying a lot of games that are very similar. Sometimes one is just a clone of the other, and and oftentimes then I realized that. It's usually not the graphics either. So um, sometimes you see the visually stunning game uh, become a complete failure, and the clone that looks pretty ugly, let's say you know, Minecraft, achieve great success. So through these years of study, I realized that you know people are not motivated by these game uh, game elements, but are motivated by by deep rooted psychological core drives. And I and it's almost a, it's very interesting, like a scientist, where every game you see is like a petri dish. And there's like hundreds of thousands of test subjects, or even millions of them. And you can observe that uh, when this game rule changes a little bit, everyone everyone's behavior modifies, and you can start studying that and understanding. So through that study, I derived out what we call the eight core drives of octalysis. So octalysis is the framework, and it's called that because it's a analysis based on octagon shape. And so there's eight core drives that motivate us to do everything we do. So every single thing you do is based on one or more of these eight core drives. Which means that if there's none of these eight core drives there, there's zero motivation. No behavior happens. Doesn't matter if it's in a game or outside of a game. And so, and these eight core drives are populated on on this octagon shape to represent different natures of that core drive too. So we, like we said, we have the white hat core drives, which basically means that people feel good, they feel powerful, they feel like they're in control, but there's no sense of urgency. Then there's the black hat core drives that give people a sense of urgency. Uh, they feel obsessed. There's, there's, there might even be addiction. Uh, however, in the long run, it leaves a bad taste in their mouths because they, they don't really feel like they're in control of themselves. Then we have what we call the left brain core drives, which are, I always have to, to, to throw out the disclaimer. It doesn't mean it's geographically on the left side of your brain, but it represents your, uh, your logical brain, basically. So these, these left brain core drives uh, extending to what we call extrinsic motivation. So things that you do for a purpose, for a reward, and for a goal, but you don't necessarily like the activity itself. So let's say your job is terrible, it sucks, it's like digging feces out of the ground, and it smells bad, you hate it. And then someone, suddenly someone shows up and says, hey, for every done you dig out, I'll give you $10,000. And suddenly like, whoa, this is easy money, ha ha ha. Sign me up. <laughs> yeah, you start doing a lot of enthusiasm, excitement, even engagement. But it's important to recognize that the task itself is still not fun. You are doing it for the extrinsic motivation of making money. Now, the right side, which has the right brain core drive, that deals with intrinsic motivation. So these are things that you just love to do. Like you would even pay people money in order to, to do. So for instance, these are things like empowerment of creativity and feedback that we just mentioned. Using your creativity is fun and seeing feedback, experimenting and optimizing. Social influence and relatedness which is you know spending time with friends, feeling you're part of a bigger group, you know that is intrinsically motivating. And then finally, unpredictability and curiosity, 
which is, you know, you don't necessarily need a reward to enjoy being the suspense of unpredictability. So for instance, if you sit there and press a button for four hours straight and you are guaranteed a paycheck, that's kind of boring, right? That's like a factory at a job. Most people don't like that. But if you sit there and press a button for four hours straight and maybe you'll get a paycheck, maybe you won't, maybe you even lose money. Hey, that's casino gambling now, now that's fun, right? Which, but that obviously is, is, the payout is obviously a lot worse than guaranteed a paycheck. So that unpredictability is what our brain craves, and we actually would pay to achieve, to to be in that state of, of unpredictability. So it's black hat, which means we don't we can't really control that. Gambling addiction comes from that core drive, but it's also intrinsic, which means we enjoy, we, we enjoy it. So like I said, when we want to design any campaign for ourselves or experience for ourselves to get ourselves to exercise more or focus on our work or pursue our dreams, or we want to design things for our clients, for our customers. You want to think through those core drives to figure out, okay, first of all, if there's none of these core drives, no action happens. So let's see what is already there. How can we add more epic meaning and calling? How do we add more ownership possession? And then understand, is this the nature I want? If I have a bunch of black hat, everyone's doing the desired action. That's great. But we know that people will burn out pretty quickly and just leave the system. Is that what you want? So, and so that's, do, you that's actually, do you actually build in black hat? Uh, motivations for some of your corporate clients? Yeah, so it, again, they depends on the goals. So usually, if you want uh, employee motivation, that's something for the long run, right? You don't want them yeah. to to just charge and burn out. So mostly it's the white hat core drives, epic meaning and calling, which is introducing more purpose, more meaning into their work, development accomplishment, which is giving them a sense of mastery, progression, you know, a feeling, a, a, you know, a path to to growth. And then empowerment of creativity and feedback that we just mentioned, you know, basically giving them more autonomy and allowing them to use their creativity to experiment. Now, a lot of times when it comes to sales and, and marketing and you know, e-commerce, sometimes they don't care about the long-term results. They should or get a long-term engagement. They just want people to go to the site, buy as quickly as possible and then leave. In that case, that's when they use Black Hat, which are like loss and avoidance. Oh, if you don't buy right now. You know the deal is going to go away, so it's, it's what we call the evanescent opportunity, uh, scarcity and impatience, which is oh this is so this is the exclusive offer it's only to you no one else has this and it motivates people to take advantage of that and then that unpredicting curiosity which is oh well if you click this button what do you you know if you if you refresh your feed we don't know what's going to happen next what's what's going to be the next product that's offered so it depends on the goal usually it's a balance uh, most people. They, if it's a goal they want themselves, they don't mind Black Hat, so they don't. They're okay with using Black Hat to go to the gym more often or eating more healthily. So you know that's why you sometimes pay a pay a gym trainer to to call you a loser, yell at you, uh, <laughs> because because you you want to accomplish the goal, right? You need that kick in the butt. Uh, what people don't like uh, is when basically um, you know. Uh, marketers, companies, governments, educators using a lot of black hat to manipulate them to, you know, work overtime, buy stuff they don't need. You know, oh, dude, uh, yeah, a great example. Like the other day, I was gonna, I was looking at a some sort of online course to sign up for, and they, they were using the classic black hat scarcity tactic. So it's like, oh, this this offer is closing in six hours. It's your last chance, like real urgency, and then. I missed it, and then I got an email to another email account like 48 hours later just giving me the same line. 
Um, <laughs> I was just like, dude, I felt really like cheated. It was that bitter taste in my mouth for sure. Yeah. So, so the thing about Black Hat is that it's extremely strong and motivating behavior. So people will take the desired action usually. Uh, but again, it leaves a bad taste in their mouth. Uh, and so they're, so when they can leave the system, they will want to. And I believe this is the problem with the Zynga games. You know, Zynga has figured out how to do all these Black Hat, you know, design techniques. And they, they don't think about it that way as Black Hat because they don't have the framework. They think of it as data-driven design. And so, but if you look at those games that Zynga have, you know, all their early metrics look great. You know, monetization, retention, you know, virality. But the problem is that because people don't feel good playing Zynga games, when they can leave the system, they will want to. And the next Zynga game is kind of like the same thing over again. So, mm. so, so that's why, again, if you don't have enough white hat in the system, people will do a lot of that activity, but then they burn out. And this is, this is scary because most companies are very data-driven. And we know that when you track the data you will automatically see a lot of black hat working and also extrinsic motivation working because again, black hat is, creates urgency, right? You're urgently motivated to take action and just like those exclusive offers and, um, and you know, extrinsic motivation hooks us in. However, if you don't pay attention to the white hat, then you, then people aren't sustained. So, so white hat are the things that you always want to do, but if, and if you do it, it actually makes you happier. So spend time in your in your faith, spirituality, or things that are purposeful. You know, learning a new skill, achieving new heights, using your creativity, pursuing a hobby. Those are the things that, if you do them, makes you happy. The problem with that is there's the black hat that's always distracting you, right? Again, it's about oh, this deadline's coming up. Oh, you know, this um, this offer is about to close on. I need to take advantage of it now. Or oh, what's on Facebook? What's on Pinterest? Science scientists have shown that whenever you uh refresh your uh, Facebook feed, it, it psychological does the same thing to you as pulling a slot machine bar, right? It's like, oh, did I win? Did I win to so- something interesting? Ah, nothing interesting. How about now? Oh, yay, this is so cool. And so you're, you're trained to, to do this stuff over and over again. Again, you don't feel good when you're living every day just doing the Black Hat stuff. Um, so that's why some people want to use Black Hat to motivate themselves to do those White Hat things um, and, and ultimately feel good. Awesome. Thanks for explaining that all. So what kind of results are you seeing with with some with the early adopters the, the companies that have really gone hard with gamification yeah so I, i've put together a page uh of the 90 plus uh gamification case studies with roi stats by companies so there's 90 things like uh google did this and increased their core metrics by 47 percent sap did this and increased their metrics by 400 percent where if you do it right it's it's nice it's actually not if you do it semi-right, it's actually not hard to see double-digit or, or tr- even triple-digit improvements on your metrics. I think the key challenge is just are you balancing the core drives for, for long-term success? And uh, But you know, there's a lot of these case studies these days, which is actually useful for people who are trying to sell uh, their values. Again, I, I don't have that issue as much, but but I have students who, who try to sell gamification services, and people are like, oh, well, we don't play games. It's for child children, and then they they pretty much whip out this list and it's like hey look very serious companies like sap you know enterprise software like uh, you know supermarkets in korea and all these they're they're using it and they've achieved huge business results and so that usually at least opens the door for the conversation about whether whether that will be for uh for for this particular client sure i mean it seems to be there's a for companies to retain their competitive edge and profitability and all that sort of thing it's a it's about 
engagement of the workforce. There's like a war on for creativity and innovation and all those sorts of things come from happy, productive, engaged people, right? Yeah, it's, it's actually very interesting because it's actually a phasal thing. At the beginning, it's all about hardware, right? Making, setting up the, the infrastructure of making things possible. And then it became software. Well, we have the hardware to deliver things, but so what are we delivering? Well, now this is software, so, so now you can change graphical interfaces, all that stuff. And then finally we get to the place, okay, now we have everything laid out. Now what are we going to show people? And this is where it's not just what's on the screen, what this code says. It's how do you connect that screen to people's brain, their psychology, and what motivates them, what, what they enjoy doing. And I, so I think this is a very important next step to, to where technology and business is evolving into. Awesome. What are some of the smartest uses of gamification that you've seen? Um, there's, a, there's quite a few, um, like let's say in marketing, right? One of the most creative ones I've seen actually is, is it was, was seen in Korea where there's this uh, a big mall chain, one of the biggest called eMart. And they're trying to, they, they've noticed that during, throughout the day, their foot traffic looks really good, but around noontime, foot traffic drops, drops off because people go to lunch and they, they serve food themselves, but people don't think of mall, a mall as the place to eat. So, so they're trying to figure out how to get people to show up to, to buy things, uh, to go to the mall during noontime. So what they did is, again, extremely creative, and I don't say this word very often. Um, they built a weird statue, and they put this in, and it's just pretty abstract. It's like little blocks, and you, can't, you don't really know what it is, but they put these statues in front of every e-mart uh, store. And so, again, people walk by, they don't know what it is, it looks weird. However, when it's noontime, the angle of this, uh, the this positioning of the sun creates a, sh a, a shadow angle that perfectly becomes a QR code that people can scan. Wow, that is smart. So, yeah, so that's a combination of, again, core drive six scarcity and impatience. Like, oh, scarcity, right? It's not just the company says, oh, there's, you have to do it soon or else we're going to shut it off. It's, it's, it's based on the laws of physics, right? And, and there's unpredictable curiosity. It's like, oh, what is that? Like, I, I don't even have to tell you you know, what the QR code is for, you naturally want to show up at new time to scan it just because of the concept itself. And of course, when they scan, they could do something great with it, but what they've done is the easy thing where you scan and say, hey, these are some discounts you can get when you go in. But just on this one design, increase their, um, their noontime traffic and revenue by, by I think, 24 to 30%, uh, which is huge because they're already the, the, the number one uh, the, the biggest uh, mall chain in, in Korea. So that's, that's an example where, where we've seen marketing. Now, if you look at employee motivation, actually early day Google is a very good example. Uh, one, of the, one of the key things about why gamification is so compelling is that it's what I call human-focused design as opposed to function-focused design. You know? Because most things are function-focused, they assume people will take the desired behavior and then it optimizes for efficiency, for you know, usability, for functionality. And um, human-focused design remembers that people in the system have feelings, have motivations, have insecurities, have reasons why they do or do not want to do something, and it optimizes for that. And so, and, and this is important because in a game, the reason why we call it gamification is because the gaming industry is the first to master human-focused design. Because there's no real purpose to playing a game, right? You never have to play a game. You have to, you know, do your taxes, go to work, do your homework. Even if you don't like it, you just have to suck it up and, and, and finish it. But for a game, again, you never have to play a game. The moment a game is no longer fun, 
you leave the game. You play another game, you check your email, go to YouTube. So games have constantly been trying to figure out how do you get people to voluntarily come to this game when there's no purpose at all and, and do these, again, repetitive tasks of matching three gens and throwing out birds. And so we're learning from games, and that's what we call gamification. Now, back to Google, right? Very early on, the Google founders decided that every single Google employee is either an entrepreneur or wants to be an entrepreneur, which means that if they don't like to be at Google, they're gone. They're, you know, they, they go out and start their own company and even compete with Google one day. And this is very important again, because most companies, they treat their employees like people who have to be there. Oh, we pay them. So of course they need to show up. They, of course they need to work hard and we can power trip and it doesn't really matter. Uh, but Google says, no, 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 this is like a game, right? The moment a game is no longer fun, people leave the game. Same with Google. So they started to implement what we call the white hat core drives, right? Epic meaning and calling. Google says, well, we, number one, we try to, we organize the world's information. And number two, we do no evil. So now all these intelligent engineers are saying, hey, look, I can get a paycheck anywhere, but at Google, I feel like I'm changing the world and I'm one of the good guys. And that's, that's really important for me. And then they added development accomplishment which is, you know, not every engineer can become a manager, but, you know, everyone needs to feel a progression. So, so they added nine levels of engineers. So you go from level three engineer to a level four engineer and you work hard, you become a level five engineer. So there's still that progression, which is core drive two. And then core drive three, empowerment of creativity and feedback, right? They said, oh, there's this uh, 20% time. So they said, hey, you know, for, you know, one day out of the week, you can work on anything you want as long as the IP belongs to Google. And so my own experience is I talk to a lot of company employees who say, oh, I want to leave my company and become an entrepreneur. And I ask why. They're always saying like, oh, because I have this really good idea and I, and I submit it to my boss and eight months, not, I heard nothing. And then some, finally they just shut it down. And it's actually a really good idea. I want to try it out. You know, I think it has a great chance. Right. And so so they leave and start a company. And, and so most of them don't really like the risk of being an entrepreneur and the hassle of, of doing all this stuff. So Google says, hey, just be, be creative, do whatever you want, use, use your genius ideas, but just stay at Google. And so that Core Drive 3 maintained and people stayed there for a long time. Now, as they become became a bigger enterprise these days, they're kind of cutting down on these white hat Core Drive designs, uh, which is a shame, but I think early day Google, they, they actually did well with, with, uh, with this white hat Core Drive design. Why, why do they have to cut down on them as they grow bigger? Um, first of all, they, they didn't really understand it as a white hat core drive thing. They went with more of a extrinsic motivation. You know, they basically said, oh, well, we're going to cut all these things that are fun, exciting because we are all about ROI. So the, the term is that we want to put more, uh, more wood behind each arrow. So they specifically f pick out project that they think makes a lot of money and will change the world. And they basically have more people working on them. So, so they mm. took out 20% time. They, uh, you know, there's the, there's less of that epic meaning and calling. So, you know, nowadays my my engineer friends are like, hey, Google's a great place to work, but they're not they no longer have that passion and excitement as, as compared to before. Now, some of it is is seen in our other companies. Sure, I mean, if you look at the startup community out there, there's there's many ex Google staff floating around, whereas yeah. uh, probably not so much in the old days. So. Thank you for explaining all that. I, I think um, we've got a really good idea of, of the potential, what, what this can do in a sort of work and, or a business environment. I'm fascinated by the topic of lifestyle gamification. And as someone who's an, a novice when it comes to this topic, but you know, I've kind of gamified my life in a sense, 
um, but I'm sure that you've taken it to the next level. Can you talk to us about that? Sure, and, and I've, I'm always experimenting. So, so it's sometimes I know something works really well, and I want to stick to it if I just want to be productive. But then I actually have to try other things that don't work so well. So, so lifestyle gamification is basically uh, define, designing your own life to to make it fun, exciting. And, and you know, I'm a. I think my second book, second or third, probably second book, will be titled Ten Thousand Hours of Play." Basically, if you're familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's, you know, outliers, yeah. 10,000 hours turns into an expert. Yeah. So the next book will be more like, that's true, but it doesn't, if you design your life correctly, it doesn't have to be 10,000 hours, hours of sweat, tears, and blood. It can be 10,000 hours of just having fun, enjoying, playing games, and at the end of 10,000 hours, you're successful, you make, you, you make a great living, and you're, you're playing every single day. So, so it's really about how do you turn your life into game. And, and I had this experience, right? When I was a student, um, what I did was I, I spent the bare minimum amount of time to get an acceptable grade. And then I spent all my rest of my time playing games and be the best at, at it as I can. And at one point, I realized that, hey, my life is the ultimate game. And, the, and so everyone's playing this game, but most of them don't know about it. They're just idle in town, just hanging out. Whereas if I just go out and start basically slaying monsters, getting more experience, leveling up, creating allies, conquer little quests, I would be way ahead of everyone else. So then I, so once I started seeing my life as a game, everything changed. Like you, you know, when I saw, okay, like when my life is a game, you don't, you don't spend the bare minimum amount to, to, to play a game, right? You try to be the best you could, you can be. So, so I became really, really good at all these things. I wrote string quartet music. I wrote a novel. I'm, I uh, I was uh, I was state champion in chess. I was a student back then uh, in debate and and orchestra and just a lot of forensics. All these things were really really good. And I went from a B plus student to like a ninety eight percent A plus student. Um, so so part of it is a mentality change, but there, there's a systematic step about okay. So how do you define the game you're playing in your life? What is what is the game you're playing? Is it about uh, doing something in the music industry? Is it about you know Creating a better search engine is about sustainability, making the world more greener. Is it about um, you know peace in the Middle East? Everyone has to figure out their game. So the step one is to choose their game, understand what what motivates you, what are what are you passionate about, what is a game worth playing that you would dedicate your life to, and then second is really understanding your 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 basic stats. So what what character are you playing in this game? Uh, you understand your innate stats. You know what are you good at? What are the skills you have? What are the skills you need to learn? Right? In, in games, you always see these skill trees, and little kids are great at. It. They'll know, oh, level thirty, I'm gonna have to learn this skill, which unlocks this other skill, level thirty-eight, and at level seventy, I'll be like this perfect, synergetically powerful character. And then you ask the same kid, like, okay, so what do you want to do next year? So, oh, I can't think about it. It's too big. You know, it's it's like my life. I, I, I don't know. I, you know, it's, my life is too too hard to think about. But clearly people have the skill set to make very sophisticated plans about acquiring skill sets and growing. Um, but when it comes to real life, people just don't want to think about it. And so you think about, okay, what are the skills I need to learn? And then once you know what you need to learn, then it's easy to pick out quests, right? These are the quests that if I take on them on, I'll actually be learning these skills. So sometimes it's getting a degree. Sometimes it's oh, uh, interning inter- at a nonprofit or even just going to a third world country. If your if your your goal in life is to learn about these things or join a big company or start a co- startup, it doesn't really matter. But you want to you want to identify all these quests 
that can actually help you with learning these skills. And then you want to find your, your alliances, right? Your allies, people who are playing the same game, so they're similar to passion as you are about the similar things, but they have complementary skills. So that's where you see, oh, you know, um, you know, some guy's a business guy, he networks, he makes friends with a lot of engineers and this complimentary, if you're both business guys, but one's on finance, one's on marketing, you know, you get to, you get to go through these quests together and grow together, which allows you to, to, to learn and build trust, build chemistry. And then finally, when you've done all these things correctly, then you're ready to take on the final boss, right? Really see if you can uh, use all the skills you learn and the allies to, to accomplish your goals. And of course, once you finish that, you could most 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 of these high level goals. If you actually accomplish it, you can probably retire. But like like I said earlier, most people don't want to retire when it's so fun. Uh, yeah. They usually pick a new game to take on and, and something bigger. That's awesome, man! It's it's really like it's, when you're explaining all of that stuff about about quests and finding allies to join you in your quest. It's I've never really thought of it like that, but it's really interesting. I mean, that's essentially what your what you want your life partner to be, your husband or your wife. You want them to be an ally on this big quest that involves potentially like reappropriating and raising kids and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of times uh your your spouse is treated like an NPC, if you know that <laughs> reference. No, right? explain it's, it. You, you always uh, NPCs are in RPG games, role-playing games. The NPC are always computer-generated, uh, computer-run characters that are usually in town, and they always say uh, serve one function. So you go and you need healing or you need to buy something. You go, you go play your game, and it's like, oh, I need, I need items or I need healing. You go back, and they always tell you the exact same things. They always do that one function, and then you go out again. So you don't treat them as you know players to play together. You treat them as NPC. Now, what's worse? is when you yourself becomes an NPC. There's a ton, a ton of people in society who's just like, oh, they, they're doing one function, you know, they're just doing, they're going on their iner behavioral inertia, and they're, they're just like, every day's the same. Three years later, it's like, hey, what's, what's going on these days? Oh, same old, I'm just still doing this thing. And you can, so, so they always tell you the exact same thing, they're always exactly the same place. And that's okay if they wanna be NPC, but usually what I've seen is, they always also say, "Man, you know, I'm. I want to do this big thing. You know, I so I totally regret I didn't pursue my dreams. Or I had these great ideas ten years ago, but and that guy just copied my idea, and and now he's a now he's a millionaire. So, so um, again, and, and what yeah, is what I see out there also is so many people who are NPCs, and it's almost like they're playing in someone else's game. Like I, I spent much of my twenties trying to achieve this." kind of notion of success in the corporate world and it wasn't wasn't my idea of success and I did it and it just felt empty when I achieved it and there was some, it was someone else's rules I was playing by I guess yeah which is interesting so, and, and, and it's a game that you did not enjoy because, that's right because if if some people like playing and this is what my job is right? I'm trying to help organizers create games that people like and some people say oh well are isn't that like manipulating people etc cetera, etc cetera. but the key is this right if you wanted to motivate your employees by one giving them more purpose to their work more meaning and making them do bigger impactful things give them a better path to mastery and progression and giving more autonomy right and figuring out a, a better uh, incentive program that makes more sense and and have them collaborate collaborate with their teammates as opposed to always just competing among each other through politics no one's going to be like, oh, that's, that's a manipulation. I hate this. Like, go away, right? <laughs> they're they're going to be like, sign me up, right? This is where I want to work. So, so that's a it, lot man. of times when you're playing someone else's game, that's okay. 
because again, it's voluntary. You can choose to play. The problem is when you feel like you're stuck in a game that someone created and the game sucks and you just day to day, you're just trying to make a paycheck, which is like extrinsic uh, motivation core drive and you're just trying to not lose your job, which is loss and avoidance. Yep. Yep. That's yep. what sucks. Interesting. So on one level, when I think about what you've been talking about, on one level, there's just this beautiful simplicity. It's kind of like, yeah, of course. But then on another level, there's, there's quite a profound philosophical angle to it. And I was interested to explore more about your life philosophy, which probably underpins a lot of the work that you do and a lot of these principles. So when you think about life, I know that we're going quite, quite big, quite deep here. But what's the whole point? Like, what do you feel is your sense of purpose? Um, so things have been evolving, especially when you have a family. But when I, I like, like kind of like you mentioned, when I was, uh, when I was more, I was a younger. I'm still pretty young, but when I was younger, I had three big goals in my life. One was to create a company that creates a whole new industry. So before, you know, let's say the computer was invented, there was no computer and nor accessory industry. Before the car was invented, there's no, uh, you know, there's no, no auto industry. Uh, two was to uh, create a global impact on some level. So global means more than one country. And uh, so that's, that's global and it's a positive impact. And then three was to make everyone around me successful. And success is defined by achieving their own dreams. So whatever they think is what they want to do, they, they achieve, they're successful. So for many years, every single day, I dedicate myself to, to moving forward to closer to these three goals. And if I spent a day not doing it, I'm like, hey, wait a second, why am I just idle in town, basically not playing the game? Um, so so that, that, was, that was really meaningful. And I think I, I've been accomplished that pretty well these days. I haven't thought about this for a while. But. Dude, those are three huge goals, by the way. Let me just uh, acknowledge the magnitude of the goals that, that your younger self set. Can you just repeat those three goals? The first one is to create a company that introduces a new industry. Yeah. The second one is create some type of global positive impact. And the third one is making everyone around me successful. Wow, so there's almost like a, the third one. So the first two, so new industry, that's just massive. Let's just think big and disruptive, okay? Love it. The second one, global positive impact. Awesome, huge. And the third one, you're bringing in other people into your game, I guess. And yeah. so you see the success of you or you see your purpose kind of aligned or tied up with the success of the people that you care about. Yeah. Awesome. I really like that. <laughs> cool. So um, talk to me about flow states just quickly before we wrap up. So what, what, what do you, how do you achieve flow in life? So flow in my framework is actually accomplish by a balance with uh, mostly with core drive through empowerment of creativity and feedback. So when you are creatively solving a problem, when you're like, oh, wait, 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 I can do this better. Wait, wait, how do I do this? Okay, feedback. Okay, that didn't work out. Let me try that. That is when you achieve flow, when you creatively engage with something. Now, when you're, when you're talking about flow, it, it, the root of that is Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi's uh, flow theory or is something different? Uh, yeah, talking about, yeah, we, we can talk about, I, I mean, I personally see that there's this sort of science of flow and then there's a philosophy of flow. Okay. I think Chick so, Sandy talks about the science of I've flow. I've actually, uh, you can see, you'll see that in my book too. My, by the way, my book is called Actionable Gamification, Beyond Points, Badges, and Leaderboards. Uh, you'll see that in my book where I overlay the eight core drives on Mikhail Chick Sandy flow theory, which basically, for, for the audience who, who doesn't know, uh, he puts a chart between 
the 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 x-axis basically is the uh, the skill level of the player and the y-axis is the difficulty of the challenge and so basically what he says is that hey look if the difficulty of the challenge is too difficult compared to the player skill level it creates a zone of anxiety people want to drop out but if the skill level is too high compared to this the difficulty then it becomes boredom you know it's too easy and so the key of is that when people are in this zone that your skill level is balanced with the difficulty you achieve this flow state which scientifically they say you know you're you lose the sense of self time you lose sense of track of time you're in a happy state and you hate being interrupted it's funny because they say they have these reports like oh gamers are angry people they always yell at each other <laughs> no no it's not it's when anyone's in the state of flow and you interrupt them they're upset it doesn't matter if they're painting or they're you know playing with puzzles or they're doing their work if you interrupt them at the time they're in flow they get upset it's not games make you violent it's when you're in flow you enjoy that state yeah, but you don't yeah. want to be interrupted and so and basically, like the key to recognize is as people spend more time on something, their skill level increases. So it, the question is whether whether you have designed experience that also it makes it more difficult. So it's they're always in flow. Now I've overlaid my eight core drives onto this this chart before in my book. Basically, if you're always motivating people by core drive eight loss and avoidance, that's at the higher end of, of flow, which means things are difficult. It's stressful. It, people are motivated to take quick action, but they they don't feel good. It creates anxiety. A level below is core drive six scarcity and impatience, which is you know it's still hard to reach, but but it's there, it's there, it's there. Maybe I'll get it. Um, and then a level below that, now we have development accomplishment core drive two, which is hey, I actually feel like I, I achieved the goal. I feel good. So that's kind of in this in in flow, right? When you you achieve things that you think that would be possible, and you actually and and you feel great about it. Then a level below that, which is in the middle of that flow chart, is what I said, core drive three, empowerment of creativity and feedback. Basically, trying ideas. Now, that's easier because sometimes there's no there's no way you can lose if you're playing with Lego or, you know, with puzzles. Or you could, I guess you could lose on puzzles. There's no there's no countdown to make you lose, though. Mm. Um, and uh, then below that, we have ownership possession, which is basically just passively collecting things, you know. Uh, and it doesn't have to be very difficult, like collecting stamps or organizing your folders. You know, that's that's a lower level of of of, uh, of skill, which so it's lower level on uh, on the uh, flow theory, at least. And then there's the social influence, so it's just hanging out with friends on the chat board. There's no real difficulty, but you know, it's kind of you just hang out there. Then there's unpredictable curiosity, core drive seven, which is you know, we in game design we always know to make things easier, add randomness to it. You know, so that so you know, a, a dad playing chess with his four-year-old daughter, it's very difficult for both sides to have fun, right? Because there's no chance; it's all just skill. But if, if a dad's playing, let's say uh, Monopoly, which I know there there's technically skill in that, there's World Championship, but for most people, it's game of, of chance and randomness. Mm-hmm. Both sides can have fun playing it. So so when you add unpredictability, it makes things even easier. So again, when you want to create flow. You, you give people a sense of that empowerment of creativity and feedback, which again is on the right top, so it's white hat and intrinsic, and you crisscross between feeling accomplished, collecting, and, and creativity. So, so that's usually how you achieve flow. Mm-hmm. And what about in your personal life? Is it, is it playing games? Do you, is it having conversations like this? How do you actively uh, tune into that state? Yeah, so 
Games are, especially good ones, are always hardwired into Core Drive 3 and Power McCritton feedback. So when I'm playing games, it does it does bring that flow state into into me, which my wife does not like because again, hours can go by quickly. Um, and, and a lot of these kind of conversations is, is more of a social influence and, and relatedness core drive. You're, you're building relations, you're bonding with a human being. And that's And it's enjoyable. It could be, there could be some flow in it. But I feel like the times that I have the most flow is when I'm developing more knowledge. You know, researching on these core drives. I'm doing more experiments. I'm writing about these findings. Um, usually, you know, because... We've only been covering the, the like the surface of octalysis. This is like not even full the full level one octalysis that I've talked about. And there's five levels in total, mm-hmm. and each much more complex than the than, than the last one. And so there's there's a lot of fascinating things. Like even things like this is still level one, but like uh, core drive combos, right? You know, so like scar- the scarcity core drive makes it more difficult. So you need more creativity. Creativity core drive comes in, but that. But once you accomplish it, gives you more accomplishment core drive, which makes you want to share more. So these are combos between these core drives. Or unpredictability magnifies ownership possession. So if you get paid, that's okay. But if there's a chance you get paid, then you get excited, even more excited. But if it's attached to loss and avoidance, you know it magnifies the fear, and you and you and get paralyzed. So that's how the insurance companies make money. Or unpredictability really enhances social influence because. When you are, if you want people to follow the social norm, you throw them in an un, uh, unpredictable environment where, where they don't know what's going on. Then they will find the person that looks most like them and do the exact same thing. But if they're in an environment where they feel like they're, everything's familiar, they're awesome, then they say, no, I want to be unique. I want to be different. I'm a cool person. So, so that's why, if you, again, if you want people to follow the social norm, you put them in an in a environment of uncertainty. And that's when they say, oh, well, what, what's everyone else doing? I should do it too. So cool, all these things are very fascinating. That, that, you know, understanding that and applying that to different designs, uh, I think that puts me in a state of flow. Interesting. And you mentioned creativity. So I imagine that when you're writing your books, I, I imagine that you're gamifying that process um, and you're allowing yourself, you're setting up the, the structures so you can allow yourself to get into that creative or flow state. Yeah, definitely. As long as I start touch so so I actually the the, the biggest uh, productivity hack I did was whenever I took wanted to take a break from uh, my client work or my emails. Usually my first inclination is, oh, I'm going to take a break. I don't want to look at my book. I want to write my book. I want to go, you know, play a game or at least go to the gym or whatnot. But I told myself I'm just going to read the last paragraph I wrote before I go on and play a game. But whenever I read the last paragraph, I always, always, like 100% of the time, my creative juice start flowing and I start writing for, like for, for 40 minutes, an hour, two hours. And then, then I go back to doing client work again. And then I say, oh, I'm going to take a break. Maybe I should play a game. And then I read my last paragraph and then flows again. So, so again, it just brings me in that flow. So even, and then I complain to my mother-in-law, say, hey, I want to go play a game, but I just can't get to it because whenever I start reading my book, I just start writing for another hour. Mm. Uh, which which is very funny because you know technically it's like I'm complaining that I don't get that I can't get myself to go play a game because <laughs> writing writing the book is the game that I'm playing. Yeah, that's right, man. That's right. That's awesome, man. Just a quick question. So I'm setting up an online community which is going to be basically web based, and I see that a lot of these online communities use try and use gamification principles, but it all seems very basic, like badges and shit like that. Um, 
what can you see off the top of your head as, as better ways to engage somebody that is on an online community? Yeah, so these are all Core Drive 2 designs, so development accomplishments, so giving them points and badges. And we know that White Hat does make people feel good, but it's completely extrinsic and it's not that interesting. So the key to make a community more intrinsic is to look at the right brain core drive, the three core drives, again, empowerment of creativity and feedback. You want to think about how can you give all your users meaningful choices. So not everyone plays the game the same way. They get to express themselves more. You know, they, you know, uh, there's more style of play. Um, and also, you want to look at social influence and relatedness. Now, this is not just, hey, spam your friends, invite your friends. There's no relatedness to it. It's more about how can everyone uh, collaborate better, you know, work collaboratively as a team, as a group quest. How can you have them give social treasure, always give each other social uh, props to each other very easily? Um, and if you want to set a competition, you want to have it as a group competition because there's, you know, collaboration is always still more powerful than competition if you look at the long run anyway. Awesome. And then also you want to make sure there's Core Drive 7, Unpredicted Curiosity, which is every time they go on, there needs to be something new and interesting. It can't just be, oh, they know exactly what they're going to see every time they go on. So that that mm. that Easter egg kind of design or mystery box, like opening a treasure chest kind of design should be there whenever they go on to that, that community. Nice. I like it, man. Some great ideas. Cool, dude. So we've covered a lot of ground, and I really appreciate your time. Um, in the show notes after this, I'll put links to, to your book and to your website so that the people out there can learn more about this. Um, but yeah, thanks a lot for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Cool. Thanks for listening to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Check us out at www.flowstateperformance.com for more inspiration to unleash your potential.